Good morning. Welcome. I am so glad to be with you in this online service. Although virtual, I'm glad we're connecting and I'm so grateful to have this time in God's word with you. We've enjoyed great music that's guided our heart in worship. And now I invite you into this time of study. Uh, acclaimed uh, evangelist and worldwide preacher, Louis Palau, once observed of his own ministry that although he had preached in over 60 countries, when he prepared to enter into a Hindu or Muslim majority country, he became overwhelmed and, and he would shake at the prospect of ministering into such cultures. But he then recalled what one Hindu guru once said to him. Lewis, he said, when you begin to minister in our culture, do not use your Western way of arguments do not try to prove your religion better than ours. Just simply describe Jesus. I love that statement because this thought serves as the theme for the opening chapters of the Gospel of Mark. I welcome you into this study forward as we engage with the truths of Mark's Gospel and truly discover the, the essence of the life of Christ. And yes, Mark took that theme as well. Let's just look at the facts of Jesus. Mark's gospel was written somewhere midway through the first century, and the purpose of his gospel was to ignite within the hearts of the early followers of Jesus a desire for each person to take up their cross and to follow Jesus and to truly live as a disciple. It becomes impossible to truly see the facts of Jesus and not be moved forward in our faith. So welcome to this time of study where we truly focus on the facts. I love that encouragement given to Louis Palau many years ago. Just describe Jesus. So we enter into God's word to see these facts of Jesus come alive. So we are in Mark chapter 2 and we'll look at verses in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 with the thought conflict in clarity. I'd like to share with you seven irrefutable points of clarity about Jesus as he hushed and silenced the cynics. Let's begin in the opening of chapter 2, reading from verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards and was heard that he had been at home, many gathered together so that there was no longer any room in the house. And Jesus was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof. And when they had dug an opening, they let the pallet down on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in this home in Capernaum, there became an amazing event where a paralytic was brought to Jesus in a most unorthodox way. And when the roof was torn and the paralytic was lowered, Jesus saw him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, within the crowd, there were religious leaders who were scrutinizing Jesus and were bringing a attacks of doubt against him. And as soon as Jesus announced, your sins are forgiven, Jesus knew that in the hearts of those religious cynics, they had begun to question, although silently, who are you to think that you can forgive sins? Only God can do this. 
This must be blasphemy. Jesus knew their thoughts, and so Jesus said to them, recorded here in Mark's Gospels, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, and then Jesus looked at the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your pallet and go home. As we look at some of the irrefutable points of Jesus' identity in a very clear way, even in the face of cynics, First, consider the fact of Jesus' authority. The cynics looked upon Jesus as he healed the paralytic, and they said, you have no authority to do this. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And, and he said, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He raised up the paralytic and told him to walk home. Now, what I love is that earlier when Jesus said, which is easier to say, pick up your pallet and walk, or your sins are forgiven. But then when Jesus gave testimony and self-disclosed himself as the one with authority to forgive sin, Jesus said to the paralytic, you, you may take up your pallet and not simply walk, but go home. You may walk back to your home. You may walk in to a place, a place you know is home, where you've never been able to walk, a place that can be fully restored. Go home and enjoy the fullness, not only of your healing, but of your forgiveness of sin. And so, yes, Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And I pray that you understand today that regardless of what has taken place in your life, Jesus truly brings forgiveness of sin. I love the fact that Mark's gospel emphasizes he has the authority as God's son, son of God, and yet son of man entering into history to serve and to save. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. So I pray that you're encouraged with this. Perhaps a story about a priest in the Philippines might help to understand how vital this point becomes for our lives. A story is told of a priest in the Philippines who, although serving God, had committed a, a, a sin early in his life and he had kept that sin secret. He tried to repent, but that sin haunted him and he never really felt peace nor forgiveness. But one day, a lady in his parish who had claimed to have visions of Christ in her dreams came to him and said, Jesus has given me a message for you. And the priest said, what is that message? And she said, Jesus had me to tell you, according to your sin, he has forgotten. What an amazing message for all of us to hear that Jesus truly has the authority to forgive, to forgive, to forget, to move us beyond our failures. And so as Mark's gospel continues to unvelop, uh, we see first the emphasis of who he is in the face of his cynics, who said, who are you to forgive sin? But Jesus demonstrated his authority as God's son and brought forgiveness that day. His authority to forgive sins was made vivid. Now, as we move on past verse 13 into verse 14, we come to a, another piece of Mark's gospel. Now, in verse 13, we're told that Jesus left Capernaum. Remember, Mark's gospel moves fast. And as he left Capernaum, he now walks along the seashore, and many people were continuing to come to him. But verse 14, Jesus passed a tax collector's booth, and he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, Matthew, uh, to, to you and me. And, and Jesus called Matthew to follow him. And Matthew immediately left his tax collector's booth and followed Jesus. Verse 15, and it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in Matthew's house, there were many publicans 
tax collectors and sinners there. And Jesus was dining with them. When the scribes and Pharisees saw this, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to, G to his disciples, why is he eating with, with, with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A second clear point that we see of Jesus' identity in the face of cynics would be this, friend of sinners. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus had quoted Pharisees who had said that Jesus was acting as friends of sinners. And when Jesus quoted that about himself, there was almost a positive affirmation that we see so vivid here. Jesus called Matthew a tax collector. Now, one would, would really question someone like Jesus having an association with a tax collector. One, under the authority of Herod Antipas, serving in his governance, assigned by Rome. So if you speak of Rome's government and the governance of Herod Antipas, then one would think not just questionable, but, but un, unthinkable that someone could associate with a person like Matthew. Tax collectors were loathed for the reason of their alignment with, with Roman government. And here Jesus did not just associate with Matthew, but called Matthew into fellowship with him and to follow him. And if that were not enough for some of those cynics of Jesus, then our Lord then returned with Matthew to his home for a dinner party, a celebration. And so the scribes and Pharisees who had been scrutinizing him when he healed the paralytic were now leaning in more severely. And because they could not question his authority to heal and forgive, now they begin to scrutinize what they would consider to be behavior that would be unbecoming of someone who would be teaching and representing God. So they questioned Jesus or his disciples about Jesus. Why would he be associating and eating and drinking with publicans, tax collectors, and sinners. Now, in Jewish culture, to uh, associate with someone over a meal would indicate strong and intimate bonds, especially concerning uh, religious belief. And so the, the Pharisees could not comprehend why Jesus would be associating with, with this group. And tax collectors were, were pressed uh, into the margin with others who were, were, were marginalized in this present culture. And, and there, as Matthew gathered those he was most accustomed with, Jesus entered in and, and connected with them and spent time with them, fulfilling what had been said of Jesus in, in other gospels, a friend of sinners. What an amazing reality of Jesus' identity, one who has become, one who is, for you and for me, a friend of sinners. Aren't you grateful that Jesus, having analogized himself as a physician in this context, did not come for those who were healthy. He came for the sick. He did not come for the righteous, or in this context, those who pretended to be righteous. Jesus did not come to support that pretension. Jesus came for those living in brokenness that we might be redeemed. He came as a friend of sinners. What an amazing demonstration of the life of Jesus. Now consider a story you and I both perhaps know well from Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, uh, engaged Jesus in a very unusual way, in the tree to the ground when Jesus was walking by. And after Jesus engaged uh, Zacchaeus, 
Jesus, perhaps one might say, invited himself home with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus became redeemed that day because of his engagement with Jesus Christ. So Jesus came as a friend of sinners, not to confirm or affirm a broken lifestyle, but to enter into one's life that we might see the love and the forgiveness of Christ and have our lives changed. Jesus came as a friend of sinners. Now, as Matthew's narrative continues to move forward throughout chapter two, we now come to a, a third a definition or a third fact of, 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 of Jesus' identity. Another point of clarity in the face of the cynics comes to us from verses 18 through 22. Now, as verse 18 opens, the Pharisees begin to, and perhaps the scribes more particularly, begin to say about Jesus that the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees practice fasting but the disciples of Jesus did not. So here we have pressed into conversation this undue comparison between what would be disciples of John the Baptist or the Pharisees and the disciples of Jesus. And the question that was pressed was this, why are Jesus's disciples exempt from the requirement of fasting? Now we understand from the Old Testament, fasting was a part of Hebraic tradition and ceremony. In fact, there are notable places where the call to fasting was highly regarded. Esther, in chapter 4, verse 16 of Esther, called the Jews to fast as she would prepare to go before the king. Joel, chapter 1, verse 14, reminds us of a call to fast in the face of, of one's need to repent before God. Even in the New Testament, Acts 13 demonstrates how the early church fasted and prayed before sending out those who were called to mission work. And so we understand from the scripture that fasting was, both from Hebraic rites and from New Testament practice, uh, a very a profound way of, of spiritual commitment and prayer before God. But here, the Pharisees question the absence of fasting in the lives of the disciples pertaining to the public demonstration of fasting. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus spoke against a public presentation of fasting. In fact, Jesus said, do not let it be known that you fast. And here, the Pharisees, particularly the scribes, are pressing in on the disciples, uh, asking why they're not fasting. And Jesus answered them with parables. And I love these three parables. The first parable represents the parable of a wedding. And in summary form, Jesus said, while the bridegroom is with the wedding party, he comparing himself to the bridegroom and the disciples to the wedding party, there is no need for gloom, but celebration. You see, the, the Pharisees practice fasting in a way that would show that their decorum, their outward decorum had suffered. And, and this demonstrated in their own minds some level of piety. Jesus said, well, the wedding party celebrates when the bridegroom is present. This builds upon other uh, parables, like the parables of the ten virgins Jesus told. There becomes celebration when the bridegroom's, bridegroom enters. And so Jesus said, why would they fast now and pray and mourn? Because the bridegroom is with them. They're celebrating. There'll be a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they may be called 
to fast. So the first parable would be the parable of the wedding. The second parable would represent the parable of what Jesus termed as the unshrunk cloth. Jesus asked a question parabolically. Why would you take old garment and patch with new cloth? Because when the the new cloth shrinks after being washed, then the tear would be worse. And then Jesus moves to a third parable of the new wine skin. No one puts new wine in old wine skin, but instead new wine is for new wine skin. If new wine were poured into old wine skin, when the gas would be released from the new wine, a process known as fermentation, then the, the liquid would expand. And because the old wine skin would be brittle, the old wine skin would break. Jesus' point would be this. The bridegroom, he himself, the Messiah, has come. And the new that the Messiah brings, meaning the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the new cannot be mixed with the old. The new that Jesus desires cannot be added to the Old Testament law so that they would become one. No, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to bring life. Whereas the law would bring condemnation, Jesus came to bring life. He came to fulfill. I I often wonder how many times... Even today, we depend upon our acts of trying to be good in and of ourselves, much like the the Jews practiced even in the presence of Jesus. They leaned upon the law instead of upon the life Jesus would bring, the redemption and forgiveness of sin and the the presence of the Holy Spirit when Jesus would ascend and the Holy Spirit would come among those who follow him. It's amazing how at times we depend upon the good that we think we can do as opposed to truly leaning upon the life Jesus brings to us. And here we see in Mark's narrative this beautiful reminder of the fulfillment. So Jesus is indeed fulfillment. Jesus is authority to forgive sin. Jesus is friend of sinner, and Jesus is fulfillment. But let's keep reading in chapter 2, on into chapter 3, because we come to a, a fourth reminder of the identity of Jesus, and that expresses Lord of the Sabbath. Now, from verse 23 through verse 28, we're given record of Jesus walking with his disciples who would reach down and grab a head of grain and husk it in their hand. And when the Pharisees saw this, they cried out, you're breaking the Sabbath. Now, obviously, the Pharisees were not successful in being righteous through the law. So this forced a development in rabbinical tradition of many versions of the Sabbath law, keeping the Sabbath holy. Some scholarship reveals as many as 40 different expressions of how one can break the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees and scribes, these caretakers of of Jewish law and ceremony, were actually following Jesus and his disciples. It's as if they were appearing behind every rock or bush. And as Jesus and his disciples were passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, as we see recorded in verse 23 of Mark 2, the Pharisees saw them breaking the grain and accused them of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus quoted from strong Old Testament history, a a, a time in David's life when David went into the temple and took the showbread and fed himself and the men with him. And so Jesus reminded the Pharisees, David has already set a precedence. Sometimes ceremony cannot trump the need of man. And so here Jesus makes that point. 
in the face of accusation that they were breaking the Sabbath. But as chapter three opens, the first six verses reveal Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And because this took place on the Sabbath again, the Pharisees and the scribes cried out, this is wrong. And in verse six, even the Herodians, those who were serving with Herod, joined the Pharisees, which by the way, historically was a very unlikely alliance, which scarcely happened, but in this time, joined together to bring fierce accusations against Jesus. But Jesus said of himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this becomes an amazing revelation. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning, the Sabbath was made for man for man to gain rest. Man was not created to be held captive by the requirements of the Sabbath. And because Jesus came to free us from the requirements of the law so that we might follow and obey him in accordance to his spirit, then yes, Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, who has authority even over those ceremonial expressions, uh, revealed himself as Lord of the Sabbath, bringing life and rest to our lives spiritually. This becomes an amazing reminder of who Jesus truly is as God's son. Uh, from the book Sabbath Times, author Tilden Edwards tells the story of a family whose children decided, their, their teenage children decided, that on Sundays they would not criticize their friends. This was, this was expressed early on as something that was playful. But this uh, observance on Sunday became so infectious in a very positive way that it spread through those teenagers to their friends to the point that the parents gave testimony that friends started desiring to come to their home on Sunday afternoons influenced by their children because of this seedbed that took place on Sunday that spread out to other parts of their lives demonstrating a quality of Christ likeness in a very powerful way. And I wonder if today you and I should see the Sabbath, the Sabbath of, of Sunday worship, the Resurrection Day worship, as a time where we are, are truly being encouraged to live out our faith in every other segment of life, not just observing uh, ritualistically or legalistically a one-day rite or ceremony, but allowing our Sunday worship to be infectious in a great way through all of the parts of our lives. Can we worship 24-7? Can we love and build community under the Spirit of Christ 24-7? Yes. And we can do that because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He brings life, not just an observance. He brings life. Now, there is yet even a fifth demonstration of the identity of Jesus, a point of clarity proven in the face of cynics. Now, as we've looked at each uh, expression of the identity of Jesus thus far, we have seen in the backdrop the Pharisees bringing harsh accusation, unruly accusation against Jesus. And those cynical comments are about to heat up as we move even to a fifth demonstration of the identity of Jesus here in chapter 3. Uh, continuing in the narrative of Mark, Verse 7 of chapter 3, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed. But they also came from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, uh, beyond the Jordan, such as Tyre and Sidon. People came from everywhere. And verse 9, 
And Jesus told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd. So, so they would not crowd him too tightly for he had healed many with the results that all who had been afflicted passed around and shared so that they may all come and touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him shouting, you are son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell anyone who he was. Now this section of the scripture from Mark's narrative demonstrates geographically a strong missional influence to the Gentile nations. You have several geographical uh, places named Galilee, Jerusalem, but you also have many places beyond Jerusalem named. In fact, this would be a great compliment to chapter 7 of Mark, where the Syrophoenician woman has, has a conversation with Jesus. So there is throughout Mark's narrative continued emphasis of the Gentile reach of the gospel. This signified that many who were demon-possessed and filled with dark spirits came to Jesus and he would, he would cleanse them from those unclean spirits. And many of those spirits would cause the possessed individual to say, you are the son of God. Now, Jesus quieted them and said, do not tell anyone. And the reason he did so was because Jesus in his identity as son of God came from the miracles and the teachings, not from the mouth of a demon. Jesus wanted no association at all with a dark spirit, even if they were speaking affirmation. And so Jesus silenced them because through his miracles, through his healing, even in regions beyond Jerusalem, the Son of God was manifested in power. And, and in reality, Jesus revealed himself for who he truly is, the fullness of God, being from God, being God, and being for God. All that he did uh, exemplified and personified and announced he is the son of God. Now we move to a, a six point of clarity in the face of the cynics as Jesus quieted them. And I, I love how each episode throughout chapter two and three shows that Jesus's identity silenced those who were harshly cynical and criticizing. And so now we come to verse 13 where Jesus names his disciples. Now earlier he had called Matthew and even in chapter 1, the, the Markian narrative alludes to uh, four disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. But here, all the disciples are named, and Jesus called them. And then in verse 20, there seems to be a break concerning the disciples that is not picked up till verse 31. But from verses 13 to 19, and from verses 31 to 35, Jesus emphasized his his disciples. And then in the face of his family present in, Jesus pointed to his disciples as being his true family. Now that was not in disrespect or disregard to his close uh, relationships, but it did signify that Jesus in his mission and in his identity called those who had come to him to follow him, whether they were related to him or not by way of Mary and Joseph, Jesus called those who were following him who were truly following him, his family, his disciples. In fact, in verse 34, Jesus looked around those who were sitting in a circle around him and said to his family, these, behold, these are truly my family. The entire setting, the disciples being called, Jesus identifying with them, 
Jesus calling the family actually identifies Jesus as master to them. Now, Jesus certainly called them friend. But the idea of master used throughout the scripture for Jesus, coming from an old Greek word, Greek word, kathagetes, references master teacher, master guide, master rabbi, the one who is over all things. And so they sat close to Jesus as their master. They leaned in and their lives belonged to him and he belonged to them. And we see Jesus being demonstrated as master, as one who was leading, as one upon whom they could fully and completely depend. This becomes an amazing reminder of the clarity of who Jesus is as our Savior and our Lord. He's master. He is our guide. He's the one who is who is in control. I, I read the other day from several scholars who enunciated over and over again how in every episode of the life of Jesus, he seemed in full control of the event and of himself when he would be attacked, even in these episodes, when he would have scathing comments made about him. He was always in control of himself or in the circumstance. But even beyond that, because he is God, he was in control and is in control of all things. Colossians chapter 1, all things exist for him and by him and unto him. So Jesus, supreme of all, is always in charge and in control. And here, that becomes demonstrated well as he called his disciples to himself, emphasizing his role as master teacher, master guide, master leader, Savior and Lord. He was master to them, and we see evidence of this. Another point of clarity comes to us in, in, in the face of the cynics as Jesus silenced them. Now we turn to one final picture of Jesus's identity, a final point of clarity of who Jesus is in the face of his cynics. And for this, we focus on verses 20 through 30. And we hear from these words, and Jesus came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that he and his disciples could not even retreat to have a meal. And then Jesus' own people, his family, heard what was happening, heard what Jesus was saying about himself. And they concluded, verse 21 of Mark chapter 3, that he had lost his senses, meaning Jesus. The scribes also came and they began bringing scathing remarks against him. Uh, he is possessed by Beelzebul, another word for Satan. He, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself. And this is what he said. So on one hand, Jesus' family, his own family, thought he had lost his mind. And then on the other hand, the scribes and Pharisees begin to associate him with demonic presence, with, with Satan himself. And so Jesus spoke into their lives and into these scathing comments, truth. You see evidenced here that a final point of clarity of Jesus' life is that he is truth. He is fully and perfectly the truth of God. And Jesus said in a much less volatile situation recorded in John 14 to his disciples, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. Here, in Mark 3, there were those questioning him. There were those violently attacking him. And yet Jesus spoke truth. So you have two opposing forces in his life recorded here. His family, 
those relationships very close in his immediate circle who were, were misunderstanding him, saying that he's lost his senses. And then you had an outer circle of influence, a very negative influence, the religious leaders casting strong negative aspersions against Jesus. Jesus responded again with parables. And I love how from verse 24 all the way through verse 27, Jesus gives statements that are very parabolic. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided, it cannot stand. If a house is divided, it will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So these parable statements reference Jesus saying, how can, how can I cast out a demon and be a part of that darkness? And so Jesus parabolically described how, how their statements were ludicrous how their statements were so, so incredibly wrong because of what they had already seen Jesus do, remember from chapter one, in the synagogue as he cast out that demon. And then all throughout the region, healing people from their demonic possession. And Jesus said, nothing that was dark could cast out darkness. And the inference is only light, only pure light and only pure truth. Light and truth are synonymous in Jesus' teaching, only truth can cast out that darkness. And then Jesus made a, a, a phenomenal summary back toward his accusers, verse 28 through 30. Truly I, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, uh, the, the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, oh, their sins will not be forgiven. There's been much quandary over these verses, but as we close, let me remind you that if you've ever wondered have I blaspheming so that my sins would not be forgiven? Then your own question becomes proof that no, you've not committed that because the blasphemy to which Jesus references would be a heart that is so cold and, and directly and violently opposed to the movement of the Holy Spirit, a heart that is seared, a heart that is, that is vengeful against God, such as was represented in many of these lives. We grieve that someone could find themselves in such a state of, of resistance against the movement of God and of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But Jesus, again, emphasized truth against darkness and against all that was wrong and against all that had, that had come against him on that day. Now, I've shared this uh, little modern-day parable we did before from Jerry McKean, but the story is described, uh, a, a true story, in fact, of a, of a, of a university student uh, who is uh, a Muslim and converted to Christianity. And when some of his um, uh, constituents in Islam asked why he converted, then the response from the student was this. Suppose you're traveling down the road and you approach a fork in the road and you are trying to discern which way to go. And two, two individuals are giving you directions uh, one who is alive, one who is dead. Which one will you listen to, the dead man or the live man? And of course, the emphasis is Jesus Christ in his resurrection power is the way, is the truth, is the life. And oh, to him we cling and to him we, we, uh, we raise our hands and our hearts of worship and celebration because he is 
truth. So we see Jesus with the authority to forgive sin. We see him as friends of sinners. We see him as the fulfillment of the law, as Lord of the Sabbath, as Son of God, as Master, and as truth. And when you and I respond to who Jesus truly is with all of these points of clarity and many others that we could uncover, does that not move you forward in your faith? Do you not find greater emphasis to confess that hidden sin and trust his forgiveness? Do you not see that Jesus has stepped into your brokenness and, and you can trust him with every area of your life? He's a friend of sinners. Do you not see that he's fulfilled the law? You no longer have to work to produce some religious goodness in your life. He came to fulfill that and just live in response to Jesus and in trust and in faith of his grace and his mercy that has redeemed us. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He has brought life to us. We do not have to go through ritual and routine to prove ourselves good. We live in response to his goodness. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's son of God. He's worthy of all praise and all worship. He's master. He's friend. He's master teacher. He's rabbi. He's our guide, but he's son of God. He's God in the flesh. And we can trust him and follow him. Why? Because he's true. He's the perfect embodiment of truth. So I, uh, I return back to that statement made to Louis Palau many years ago. Don't try to argue Christian faith over others. Just simply describe Jesus. Today you've seen a very clear and vivid picture of Jesus from chapters 2 and 3 of the Gospel of Mark. And I pray that once again, we will lean in and we will listen and we will bow before and we will honor and we will trust and we will follow Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God's Son, our Savior and our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lift us up, Father to not only hear your word today, but to apply it by truly trusting in Jesus and following him in every area of our lives. Help us not to simply be Sabbath Christians or Sunday Christians, but help us, Father, to uh, gather and worship and then go and live and speak and serve in a demonstration of the Christ that we know who has changed us. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Hey, thanks again for joining us for Forward, a study in Mark's gospel. Truly seeing Jesus moves us forward. I'm excited to uh, move into chapter four with you as we look at some specific parables Jesus taught in this fast-moving, fast-paced gospel narrative from the Holy Scriptures, the gospel of Mark. Thank you for joining us today. And before you go, there is a website location right here on the screen. If you would use that just to reach out, this is our one medium of communication in this broadcast. If you would reach out, we'll respond to you quickly about what it means to know Jesus, to follow him, to trust him, and to grow in your faith. So I pray that you'll reach out. We look forward to hearing from you. But until we, till we meet again next Sunday, right here, be encouraged. Come see us on site. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to see you again. But be encouraged to live in response to Jesus Christ. Move forward in your faith. God bless.